We're going to be reading right now from 2 Kings chapter 6. We're carrying on our series on the person of Elisha. And we're reading from 2 Kings 6 verses 8 to 23. Now, the king of Aram was at war with Israel. After conferring with his officers, he said, I will set up my camp in such and such a place. The man of God sent word to the king of Israel, beware of passing that place because the Arameans are going down there. So the king of Israel checked on the place indicated by the man of God. Time and again, Elisha warned the king so that he was on his guard in such places. This enraged the king of Aram. He summoned his officers and demanded of them, tell me who's the mole, which of us is on the side of the king of Israel? None of us, my lord, the king, said one of his officers, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the very words you speak in your bedroom. Well, go find out where he is, the king ordered, so that I can send men and capture him. The report came back, he is in Dothan. And then he sent horses and chariots and a strong force there. They went up by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, An army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh no, my lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. And then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all round Elisha. As the enemy came down towards him, Elisha prayed to the Lord, strike this army with blindness. So he struck them with blindness as Elisha had asked. Elisha told them, this is not the road and this is not the city. These are not the droids you're looking for. Follow me and I will lead you to the man you are looking for. And he led them to Samaria. After they entered the city, Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men so that they can see. And then the Lord opened their eyes and they looked and there they were inside Samaria. When the king of Israel saw them, he asked Elisha, shall I kill them, my father? Shall I kill them? Do not kill them, he answered. Would you kill those that you have captured with your own sword or bow? Set food and water before them so that they may eat and drink and then go back to their master. So he prepared a great feast for them. And after they'd finished eating and drinking, he sent them away and they returned to their master. So the bands from Aram stopped raiding Israel's territory. Do you know, apparently Beethoven, the uh, composer, not the dog, the, <laughs> apparently he, uh, in his late 20s, he became 60% deaf in both ears. And in his 30s, he went completely deaf. And yet, in that period of his life, it said he wrote most of his greatest works of music. And in fact, all, pretty much all the ones that you would hum and sing along to and are on the car adverts and things like that, they're ones that, that, would, that he would have not heard with his own physical ears, but he heard them in his mind clearly. And there was one time when he stood before a concert hall full of people and he, he, he directed, he conducted a... a a whole um, symphony and it it received such acclaim and such applause that people were in standing ovation and just would not stop applauding behind him he couldn't hear anything behind him 
and he was trying to get the attention of the orchestra to keep going, and they, they just couldn't play because he didn't understand that people were clapping behind him. Isn't that incredible? I think that's incredible that somebody who was deaf could write their greatest music when they can't hear. But it says something about the human body, right? It says something about us as human beings, that we're more than just our five senses. That we're more. There's things about our mind that perceive and can conceive things that perhaps are beyond smell or touch or hearing. And this story today that we read, it seems to be telling us about a sense of seeing that isn't always available to us as human beings. And my heart for you today is this, that that you will begin to see things in a different way than you have so far in your life. And perhaps you'll be looking at a situation you're facing at the moment, and you'll begin to see it in a different way with the eyes of God. Or perhaps today you've come and you're confused and you're looking, is, is Christianity for you? Is Jesus real? And today God can open your eyes to see Jesus in a whole new way. It's possible to see and yet not see. It's possible to hear and not hear. In fact, probably the greatest communicator who ever lived, Jesus Christ, I don't say probably, he is. (laughs) He said this, he used parables to convey his message and it was a highly effective way of, of talking. Yet he said this, people said, why do you use the parables? And he said, well, he said, because if you're looking, if you're searching, He said, then you'll understand all the points of reference. He said, but if your mind is closed and and if you're cynical and hard-hearted, then he said, then you'll see and not see. You'll hear and yet not hear and not understand. So here's what I want to invite you today is to open your spiritual ears and to open your spiritual eyes and to look and find and to hear and understand. So this story is all about seeing in a new way. An aggressive foreign king is trying to invade Israel, yet his plans keep getting thwarted because God tells Elisha what's going on. Elisha sees what is happening, and he warns the king of Israel. He says, well, don't go there because you'll get attacked. And this goes on, and the the king of Aram gets deeply frustrated, so he sends people to capture Elisha. He says, well, if we can get him, then that will solve the problem. And... So he tries to capture Elisha, not thinking that Elisha would obviously know that was going to happen as well. And he surrounds his house, and Elisha's servant panics because he sees all the armies surrounding Elisha's house. And he says, Elisha, oh no, what are we going to do? And Elisha says, Lord, please would you open my poor servant's eyes? And this servant has his eyes open to a spiritual reality. He sees all the heavenly hosts of heaven, the chariots and the and the horses that he hadn't seen before. And Elisha says, God's got this covered. And then Elisha prays for the foreign army to be blinded temporarily, and they're blinded, they stop seeing. And then he leads them into Samaria, and then he prays for their eyes to be opened, and they see again. And they find themselves in a place where judgment could have come their way, but God opens their eyes to his grace, and we'll see later on that... uh, they go home having experienced and seen God in a whole different way. It's all about seeing. And the first thing I want to focus on this morning is this, that the Bible teaches about a God who sees everything. 
He sees everything. Verse 12 that we read, Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king the very words you speak in your bedroom. Now, here's the question for us. Was Elisha hiding under his bed? No. That's not the the sense of this at all. The, The sense is this, that Elisha is hearing from God the very personal details of a king who's miles away and what he's saying in the most secretive place. God hears the very words spoken in the king's bedroom. And we worship a God who hears, who sees, who knows, who's aware. Do you know, you might look at your life sometimes and and in moments of loneliness or moments of despair, you might ask yourself this question or think this. You might think, does anybody know what's going on for me? And humanly speaking, somebody may not know what's going on for you. But do you know, there is a God who knows exactly what's going on for you. In fact, you read this again and again in the Bible. There was a time when, Egypt, uh, when Israel was held captive in Egypt. And they were held as slaves. And God appeared to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 3.7. And the Lord said, Indeed, I've seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. And I'm concerned about their suffering. I've seen, I've heard, I'm concerned. God wasn't oblivious to the problems of his people in the world right then, and he's not oblivious to them now. You know, there's another lady in the Bible. Her name was Hannah, and her name means favor or grace. Yet she lived in a world where the only important thing that seemed to matter for her was that she could have children, and that's the one thing that couldn't happen for her. And so she goes to the tabernacle one day, and she's calling out to God, and she's praying to him. And from what the book of 1 Samuel describes, she's in a right state. Her mascara's running, her hair's everywhere. In fact, she's so upset that she can't even verbalize her prayers. It's just like her mouth is moving, but she can't even say the words. And a priest by the name of Eli, who's probably the worst pastor you'll ever come across in the Bible... He goes up to her, this this clearly distraught woman, and he says, are you drunk? Have you been drinking too much wine, Hannah? And she says, no, she says, I'm really, really distraught. And uh, he kind of backs up a bit, and he says, oh, well, may God give you what you request. And anyway, God does give her what she requests. A year later, she gets given a baby, and his name is Samuel. Do you know what Samuel means? It's a great name. It means God hears. And this is what happens for this lady when she holds a baby in direct answer to her prayer. She says, I'm going to call him God hears. Do you know, every time God answers one of your prayers, it's a moment to celebrate and remember that he's a God who hears. He's a God who knows. He's a God who's concerned. He's a God who understands. He's a God who hears. I remember when I was a teenager, I started writing down things I was praying in a book just to see how often God answered. And I was amazed. There's something like 80% of the prayers I prayed, which I would otherwise have forgotten about, because often they're quite mundane things we're praying about, aren't they? 80% of those things God replied to, and he answered. There's one time when Jesus was at the tomb of Lazarus. Jesus, 
the Son of God. He shows us what God is like. Does God hear? Well, well, this is what Jesus says about his relationship with God. In John 11, he's facing the tomb of Lazarus. He's asked for the stone to be removed. And he says, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me. This is how it was between Jesus and the Father. He said, Father, I, I know that you always hear me. If you're a Christian, you're in Christ. And the truth is this, God will always hear you because you're in his son. And just as God always heard what his son said, so he always hears what you say as you're in him. Jesus was deeply aware of the world around him, deeply aware of the needs of people around him. There's one time when in a crowd of bustling people where everybody's prodding and poking and touching him, Everybody wanted to be near Jesus, and this lady came from behind, and she needed a miracle. She needed a healing. And so she pulled the, the bit of his garment, and she said, if I just touch him, then I'll be healed. And she was. And Jesus completely noticed in a crowd full of people poking him. He said, who did that? He was aware. He heard. He understood. There was another time when people were putting money into the offering, and there was a, a lady, she was deeply poor, and all she had was two copper coins, all that she had to live on, and she put them in the offering. If you were to, uh, if you were to translate that into British money, probably pre-Brexit, pre -Brexit, that would be worth about 2p, now it would be worth about five pounds. It was all she had to live on, it's two tiny amounts. Jesus said she gave more than everybody else. He noticed what she gave. He noticed he saw, he heard. There's another time when there was a, an evil tax collector by the name of Zacchaeus and he'd climbed up a tree in the hope of getting a glimpse of Jesus. And Jesus stops under the tree and having never met Zacchaeus before, he looks up at him and he says, hi Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus momentarily I think is flattered. He says, wow, he knows my name. And then I think his face probably drops as he thinks, he knows my name. He knows everything about me. He knows the people I've ripped off and the people I've cheated. Here's the truth. God knows everything about you. And that's a great comfort. Who hears the cry of a single person looking for companionship? God. Who hears the cry of a couple longing for children? God does. Who hears the cry of a grieving widow? God does. Who hears the cry of a child who's being abused? God does. Who hears the cry of those being martyred for their allegiance to Christ around the world right now? And the answer is, God does. It's a great comfort, but it's also very sobering. It means he also hears, like this king that we read about, he hears those private conversations that you have in secret in your bedroom. The Bible says he even knows your words before you speak them, your thoughts before you think them. Do you know, it's a... Uh, helpful thing to take that knowledge when you find yourself in that secret place when you find yourself where your tongue can be a little loose where you think well I'm in a private company here I'm just talking to my friend here or perhaps when you're looking at websites in that in your room by yourself and you think well nobody can see remind yourself of this God sees He's there. He's looking at your website and he's looking at you and he's looking at the screen and he's looking at you and he's wondering what you're going to do. He's hearing your conversation in private and he's saying, what are you doing? 
He's a God who hears. And he's a God who, unlike us, can take all of this on at once. If I look at the news for more than two minutes and all the situations that go on around the world, I, I, I have to turn off after two minutes. I can't cope with it. I'm overwhelmed. But we worship a God who's not overwhelmed, but he knows everything, and he sees everything, and he cares about everything. Somebody wisely said, God only gives three answers to prayer. Yes, not yet, or I have something better in mind. When God doesn't answer immediately, it's not because he's not heard or understood. It's because one of those things is going on. But what we see in this verse is this, that God answers his people's need through helping them see differently, to see better. And I want us to see in these remaining moments this morning of a God who helps his people see differently in three ways. And he helps them see beyond themselves, he helps them see beyond their fears, and he helps them to see beyond God as simply wanting to judge them, but to give them grace. So firstly, he wants his people to see beyond themselves. So here's the story. It's about Elisha. Well, it's actually not totally about Elisha. It's one of his stories. It's one of his many stories where he's doing something for somebody else. In this case, he's warning the king to say, you need to hear what God is saying to you because your life is at risk. He didn't get so stuck into his job as being a prophet saying, well, really, I'm the center of things here. It's all about me. He used his gifting to serve other people. And I want to suggest for you, your gifting is primarily the thing that God's given you to do, your unique thing, is there primarily to serve other people. Prophets in the Old Testament were sometimes called seers, and that's because they saw stuff, right? And I get this impression of of prophetic people in the Old Testament, it wasn't so much that they sat down and they said, God, what are you saying today? It's this, that God gave them visions and pictures and they they saw a different reality. And there's this sense in which all Christians, you and I, we're called to be people who see things differently, who see things. We look around the world and we don't just accept it as read and accept what people are saying about it. We look at it through the eyes of God We look at it and we see something about it. We see where it's going. We see where it's headed. We see that there's a a judgment to come one day. We see that Jesus is coming again. And that shapes the whole reality that we live in. We're called to be people who see differently. Now, the Bible also says that some people have prophetic gifting, both in the Old Testament, you find that, and in the New Testament as well. Now, whilst there's differences between the Old and the New Testament prophets... Today I want to look at some of the similarities that you might face if, if, if prophetic stuff is your gifting, if you feel God's called you to be a prophet, and that's a gift that's available to the church today. I'd say both of these, the Old and the New Testament prophet, they both reflect the person of Jesus who is the ultimate prophet. It says in Hebrews 1, in the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times in various ways, but in these last days he's spoken to us by his Son whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he made the universe. That's to say, both old and new point to this greater reality of the person of Jesus. But let me just give you three quick bullet points. If, if your calling and your gifting is prophetic, 
Here's some similarities. Firstly, it's a lonely job. Think about this story from Elisha's point of view. Who's God speaking to about the king being in danger? Him. Him. It's not that there's a general sense in the nation that this is what God is saying. In fact, every time Elisha goes to the king, the king's saying, really? I'm in danger again? When you're prophetic, often you carry a burden alone. Not everybody sees what you can see. Sometimes you can find yourself married to someone. You think, don't you see what I see in this situation? Because God often puts different types of people together, and that can be a frustration. Sometimes you can find yourself in a church, and you you think, gosh, I feel God's giving me a prophetic gift. How come other people don't see the world as I see it? And sadly, that isolation and, and that loneliness sadly can lead to prophetic people end up leaving the very place they're called to strengthen and bless because they just want to go and find other people who are more like them. And to find a church where, gosh, everybody's prophetic like me, and it's very exciting when you go into one of those churches, but I want to say that the primary job of a prophetic person is to strengthen the body and to strengthen people who don't see as clearly as you do what God is saying. If you feel that loneliness at times, then... Be aware that God has called you to purpose. Here's the second thing. Use your gift constructively. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 14, he who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. And Elisha did exactly that. He used his gift to strengthen Israel. He didn't want the king to be be killed, so he used his gift to strengthen and encourage and to comfort And importantly, he brought his gift to the king. He submitted it. He said, hey, king, I've I've got this gift. You can hear it if you like. It's it's news about whether you're going to live or die. You might want to hear what I'm saying. But the king acted with such grace towards him. The king would often call Elisha, my father. He held him in the highest regard. The key for prophetic gifting is uh, is to be in a place where you bring your gift before leaders and that gift is honored. Third thing, just briefly, that just like Elisha, if your gifting is prophetic, the enemy will target you at times. He will surround you. And the enemy will try to get at you and discourage you and tell you that you're not prophetic and tell you that you shouldn't prophesy. And when you go through those times, a deep relationship with God, as Elisha had, is vital. some of you here today and and you know God's calling you to prophetic gifting and it's hard it's hard I'd love to just pray for you just right now the Bible doesn't say that prophetic gifting is any more important than any other kind of gifting but I'd love to just pray with you for a moment as we see the vulnerability of Elisha in this story I'd just love to pray with you If, if that's you just raise your hand not just love to pray for you if you know, if you know God's giving you prophetic gifting. If somebody's got a hand up, why don't you just reach out and touch them? Let's just bless them right now. Lord, we want to thank you for the gifts you give to your church. And I want to thank you for prophetic gifting, this wonderful gift of the ascended Christ. I want to pray that you'd release this gift more in our midst. 
I want to pray, Lord, that you'd give these dear brothers and sisters courage and strength and a close walk with you. Lord, I pray that they would not feel on their own. But Lord, I pray that they would feel love and encouragement from those around them. And Lord, I pray that you'd give them very, very close friendships. And Lord, I pray that you'd... Uh, I pray that you'd help them to use their gifts in really ever more constructive ways for your glory. Speak to them, Lord. Speak to them, Lord. I pray for a church that knows its identity in God through the prophetic utterances of the people of God. Show us your calling for us, Lord. Amen. Amen. A couple more points. So, eyes to help serve other people. Here's the second eyes that, that, that God gives in this story. Eyes to see beyond fear to trust in God. So, verse 15 we read, When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh no, my Lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered, those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. And then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots and fire all around Elisha. The servant finds himself in an oh no situation. Do you ever find yourself in one of those? Where you think, oh no. He sees an army with horses and chariots. We might praise him as being a realist, a pragmatist, somebody who sees the world correctly. The truth is this, he wasn't seeing enough of the reality around him. He was only seeing what was physically real. And what Elisha needed to pray for him was he wanted him to see the whole picture. And the whole picture was so much better than the limited picture that he saw. The whole picture was this, that the very armies of God, horses and chariots of fire, when you see fire... It means the presence of God. When you see horses and chariots, it means the power, the strength of God. When he saw them, it meant the nearness of God. It meant this, that God was near, God was powerful, and God was present. And he said, servant, whose name we don't get to know, servant. He says, here's the truth. God is more real than anything you can see right now. That's a, that's a, a, a catastrophic thing to say to a Western mind these days. To say that God is more important than anything that you can see. The chair you're sitting on right now, God is more real than this reality we experience. But that's the truth of it, that God wants to open your and my mind to today. We don't know if Elisha could actually see them, but he knew of them deep in his psyche. Eyes of faith understand the nearness of God's presence. One of the psalmists said this, he said, I lift my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? He's looking to see if God is going to send armies, people to protect the people of God. And then he reminds himself, ah, oh, my help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. The nearness of God is your greatest encouragement. It's far greater than any human comfort you could ever receive. 
Corrie Ten Boom, who uh, helped hundreds and hundreds of Jewish lives be saved in the Second World War by hiding them in her house. She got put into a concentration camp for her crimes by the Nazis. And there was one time she, she faced all sorts of adversity in the concentration camp, and one day she received a letter to say that her father, who she loved so dearly, who she'd been separated from when she was put in prison, that he'd died. And she received this letter, and she wept, and there was a prison guard passing, and she, she shouted to him. She said, she said, my father has died. And she said, and this prison guard, this Nazi prison guard, just looked at her and laughed and said, so? And she said, in that moment, she said, I prayed, dear Jesus, how foolish of me to have called for human help when you are here. You may not get human sympathy, but Jesus is always there. And you can always call on him. And the eyes of faith trust even when they don't see. Uh, have you ever been in that situation where uh, somebody, it, where you missed church one week and, and you, know, you had something else, busy, something important to do and, and you thought, oh, I'll just give it a miss this week. And, and uh, you say to somebody afterwards, oh, how was it? And they say... It was amazing. It was like the best church service ever. Have you ever had that? I always miss those church services where it's the best service ever. And, you know, I'll send the staff meeting and Natty and Luke will be like, oh, it was incredible this Sunday, Dan. You were on holiday. I mean, maybe there's a factor in that. I don't know. But, it, and, but I always seem to miss those really good meetings. Well, you won't, miss any, you won't see any, meet anybody in the Bible who missed the more important event than the Apostle Thomas. You see, Jesus had risen from the dead and he'd come back and he'd appeared to the disciples who were all together. They were kind of just finding camaraderie with one another. I don't know where Thomas was that day. I don't know if he slept in. I don't know if he was ill or on holiday. We, we don't know. But we do know this. He missed the, the resurrected Jesus visiting them in bodily person. And everybody said, hey, Thomas, you missed a great church meeting today. <laughs> And they, and they began to explain, and, and, and he, he's obviously feeling a bit of a misery, and he said, he said, well, I don't believe you. I think you're teasing me. I think you're having me on. He says, unless I put my hands into the side of Jesus where the, the spear went in, and, and my fingers into where the nails went into his hands, he said, I will not believe that Jesus is alive. And uh, Jesus is merciful to Thomas as he is to us, and, and he, Jesus appears to them again. He says, hi, Thomas. And... Uh, Thomas, rather than following through on his kind of cynical worldview system, he doesn't sort of pursue the idea of putting his hand in Jesus' side and touching the wounds. He bows down, he says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus says to him, Thomas, stop doubting and believe. See, just because Thomas hadn't seen the reality didn't mean it wasn't true. In fact, Jesus went on to say to him, you've seen me and believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. When you're walking through times in your life where you do not see, they are times that are blessed by God. And they're times when you can still believe the reality of who he is and his nearness to you, 
even when you don't experience it and see it firsthand. We were um, on a family trip to the beach a couple of years ago. We went up to St. Andrews, and it was a beautiful day in Edinburgh. And we left, the sun was shining, and we got to St. Andrews, and this sea mist had descended over the entire beach, and that you couldn't see more than four feet in front of you. And uh, what you do is, when you, you're a parent with four young kids, is you just do it anyway. So we went and just sat on the beach, and we got out our picnic mat, and we sat there in this kind of cold mist on the beach in St. Andrews, and we could see the sand, and we could build sandcastles, and we, kind of, we felt a little bit lonely, if we were honest. We thought, who else is doing this, really? But then, amazingly, the fog just lifted in a moment. And do you know what we saw? There was hundreds of other young families <laughs> with children had also said, well, we're here now, we're going to do it. And sometimes God does that. He lifts the fog in your life. He lifts the mist so that you can see. And that's an act of his mercy. But the reality is true even when he doesn't, that he's near you and he's with you. Third thing that God wants to open your eyes to. It's eyes to see beyond punishment and fear, to see a God of grace who loves you. So verse 20 says, After they entered the city, Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men so they can see. Then the Lord opened their eyes and they looked and they were inside Samaria. And the king says, Hey, shall I kill them? Uh, Don't kill them, he answered. Would you kill those you've captured with your own sword or bow? Set food and water before them. He prepared a great feast for them, and after they'd finished eating and drinking, he sent them away, and they returned to their master. And so the bands of Aram stopped raiding Israel's territory. Here's what Elisha does. He leads them right into the heart of the capital of Samaria, and he brings them before the king. And then he says, Lord, please open their eyes, and these people, not knowing where they are, find themselves in a place where judgment looks absolutely certain. They're surrounded by all the strength of Israel, They'd open their eyes, and this was the second oh-no moment of the story, where they thought, this is it. It's curtains for us. And even the king is saying, great, shall we kill them? This is our moment to get even. It's our moment for justice. It's our moment to, to put the record straight. These people who have been attacking us and trying to get in on us, now we will finish it once and for all. Yet the story takes an interesting turn at this point. Elisha says, no, let's give them a meal. Let's give them food and drink. Let's give them the best meal they've ever had, and let's send them home. What's that? Grace. It's grace. People who should have received judgment and expected judgment receive mercy and grace. And it's incredible When they opened their eyes, they would have expected judgment. What they got given was mercy. Do you know, to become a Christian involves two things. Firstly, it involves God opening your eyes to see the judgment that you're due. But then it's this, that you understand that through Jesus, you received the most incredible gift of all, forgiveness and eternal life, and God sends you on your way with a full stomach and with a full amount of his love in your heart because he's a God of grace, not a God of judgment when you put your trust in him. I remember a few years ago, I 
uh, well, a few, 20 years ago, in fact. In fact, I remember this story this week because um, I started playing squash with Julie. We started doing this on our Mondays. And uh, I remember that the last time I played squash was 20 years ago. And it was when I first started uh, my first job as an engineer. And uh, uh, you know how you are in a new job, you're making friends with everybody. And I was chatting to my boss one day, and I noticed he had a squash racket with him. And uh, I said, oh, I see you, you play squash. And he said, oh, yeah. And uh, my, my boss, he was kind of a, a middle-aged guy, sort of 45, sort of thinning hair and, and expanding waistline, you know the kind. And uh, you know the kind. Um, and, uh, and there was me in my sort of early 20s. And, and uh, anyway, we were sort of chatting about it. And, 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 you know, you're just wanting to sort of be friendly and all of that. And, and he said, oh, he said, do you play? And I said, yeah. Yeah, of course I play, yeah, you know. I never lifted a squash racket in my life before, but, but I just thought, hey, you know, let's just go with this conversation. He said, oh, he said, do you, do you fancy a game sometime? I was like, yeah, yeah, I, I could do it. I mean, I thought, I thought to myself, firstly, I thought, well, I've played a bit of table tennis and badminton, what, you know, racket sports are all the same, right? And then I, th I looked at him and I thought, well, I'm 20 years younger than you. You know, on pure physicality alone, I can win this match. <laughs> Anyway, so, so we went off and played squash one day, and, uh, and uh, you know, there's a couple of easy shots early on that I missed, but, um, uh, but you know, I started hitting the ball back quite effectively, and, and I, I did some pretty heavy sort of uh, reaches and sort of jumps and kind of dive to, to rescue some shots. I mean, it was pretty exhausting. And then a couple of minutes in, my boss said, uh, so that was the warm-up. He said, uh, should we start? I've got to say, in that next half an hour, out of the 50 points scored, I got one. <laughs> he totally whipped me. In fact, he didn't move. He didn't break a sweat. He just stood there in the middle of the court going ding, ding, ding. And I was all over the place. I was absolutely dead by the end of it. And here's the truth. I, I misevaluated myself. I certainly misevaluated him. And my... My takeaway point was this, if I'm ever going to play squash again, I'm going to play somebody who I can beat. <laughs> or at least was on my level, should I say. But you know, most of us, when we look at our behavior and our lifestyle, we never benchmark ourselves to the best. We benchmark ourselves to people who are a bit lower than us. And... The Bible doesn't benchmark you against people who are doing worse than you. It actually benchmarks you against Jesus Christ, who's perfect and outstrips you a million to one. And the gospel is this, that Jesus went into the squash court and he took your sin in as his opponent and he took your failure and he took your addiction. He took everything that you're deeply ashamed of and it looked momentarily like it had beaten him and had got the, better of, got the better of him on the cross. But then he rose to life. And he beat everything that was opposed to you. And now he offers you his grace. He's not evaluating you based on what you have or haven't done. Because Jesus has done everything necessary for you. And today he wants to open your eyes to see that he loves you that he died for you, he rose again for you, and he can fill you with his power. So I'd love us to just uh, close and 
we're going to pray to finish. And just as we're praying right now, maybe just take a moment to think how God's speaking to you today. Maybe you don't know his nearness right now and your prayer to him, Lord, is open my eyes. Maybe your prayer is, Jesus, I want to know you. going to pray a prayer now and if you're asking Jesus to know you then if you're asking Jesus you say I want to know you Jesus please come into my life and pray this prayer with me in your heart dear Lord Jesus thank you for coming from heaven to earth for me thank you for paying the price for all of my sins on the cross Thank you that you rose again so that I might know you and that I might see you. Please open my eyes now and come and live in my life. Amen. And Lord, I just want to pray for those who are struggling to see through the mist right now. I pray you draw close to them, they'd know your nearness. Help us to walk this life of faith you've called us to and bring us to glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.